Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D. R-E-V-I-E-W, or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Tuesday the 1st of March 2022, News. Scotland's drug deaths, Dundee study to trial remote overdose device. This article is by Helen McCardle. A clinical trial is set to investigate whether a wearable device can reduce the growing number of fatal opioid overdoses in Scotland. John Dillon, Professor of Hepatology and Gastroenterology at Dundee University, will lead the rescue trial of a pneumowave manufactured biosensor that alerts emergency services to overdoses in real time to enable them to deliver a life-saving antidote. The device works by sensing unusual changes in breathing. Fatal respiratory depression can be caused by excess intake of prescription or illicit opioids. Scotland has the worst rates of overdose deaths in Europe with 1,339 deaths in 2020, a 5% increase on 2019. Nearly all of these deaths are preventable when a highly effective antidote, naloxone, is administered early enough, but currently this relies on coincidental discovery of those affected. Professor Dillon said that he hopes the trial will demonstrate that pneumowave's respiratory monitoring technology has the potential to save many lives. He said, working in the field that I do, I see firsthand the devastation that opioid overdoses bring. Large numbers of my patient group die from overdoses every year, and this is a major issue everywhere, but one that we in Scotland need to address particularly urgently. The bare statistics about drug-related deaths are there for everyone to see, but these do not tell the whole story, that of the many tragedies and lost opportunities that lie behind them and the heartbreak that they bring to families and loved ones. The rescue trial is part of a wider programme of clinical research that includes trials in King's College London and the Queen Elizabeth University Hospital in Glasgow. Patient recruitment to rescue has already begun. Pneumo Waves founder and CEO Dr Bruce Henderson, a physician working with patients at risk of overdose, said the trial is critical in the development of this potentially life-saving technology. This article is by Helen McCardle. The Herald, Tuesday the 1st of March 2022, News. SNP secrecy row over vanishing state bank boss. This article is by Tom Gordon. The Scottish Government has refused to explain the abrupt and mysterious departure of the woman running the country's £2 billion investment bank. SNP Finance Secretary Kate Forbes was jeered by MSPs at Holyrood as she repeatedly refused to tell Parliament what the bank had told her about the exit of £235,000 a year, Ellie McTaggart. 
Ms McTaggart quit as Chief Executive of the state-owned Scottish National Investment Bank last week with immediate effect, but the institution gave no further details. The 47-year-old had been chosen to lead the bank in April 2020, ahead of its launch in November that year. The bank's Chief Financial Officer, Sarah Roughhead, is now acting as Chief Executive, while the bank's board looks for a replacement. The Scottish Government has pledged to give the SNIB £2 billion over 10 years to help it support green jobs as the country makes a just transition to a net zero economy. It has already disbursed £200 million to 13 projects and employs 50 staff. At Holyrood today, Tory MSP Liz Smith tabled an urgent question and asked Ms Forbes to tell Parliament the exact reasons for Ms McTaggart's resignation. Ms Forbes acknowledged there was legitimate interest in the matter, but refused to reveal what the bank had said, saying it was a matter for Ms McTaggart and the board. She said, I recognise that there is significant interest and questions around the Chief Executive's resignation due to the seniority of her role and the importance of the Scottish National Investment Bank to Scotland's economy. The reasons for the former Chief Executive's resignation are a martyr for her and the bank's board. The board have kept ministers up to date with all matters relating to the Chief Executive and the executive team and board members will continue to provide strong leadership for staff and bank clients. Ms Smith said Ms Forbes had previously stressed the SNIB's critical role and asked if there should be full transparency given the large sums of public money being given to the bank. She asked Ms Forbes if the public had the right to know the full details of the current situation and the reasons why Ms McTaggart resigned. However, an uncomfortable-looking Ms Forbes again refused to explain the situation. She said, I would echo the comments that Liz Smith has just quoted me on because since its launch, the bank has made significantly good progress. They have built up an operational structure. They have recruited 50 staff, delivered £200 million of investment to 13 projects and they continue to build that investment portfolio and we expect further announcements about investments over the coming weeks. It will continue to support our recovery. As I said already, I note, I know that there's public interest, there's political interest in answers and in ensuring there is transparency. I can say once again that matters related to the former Chief Executive's resignation from the bank are very much for the former Chief Executive and for the bank's board. It was the second transparency row of the day for Ms Forbes, who this morning launched the Scottish Government's 10-year economic strategy. Despite inviting the media to watch the event online, the government refused to let journalists ask her any questions on the document. Ms Smith said later, the Scottish government has left us completely in the dark about what is happening at the Scottish National Investment Bank. There may well be personal reasons for Ailey McTaggart's resignation, but the Scottish government must acknowledge the extent of public concern about this matter. The Scottish government has an obligation to ensure there is full transparency about this situation and as quickly as possible. Scottish Liberal Democrat Economy spokesperson Willie Rennie said, Ministers have made the National Investment Bank one of their flagship economic initiatives 
at a time when the Scottish economy is falling further behind other parts of the UK. It is absolutely essential that with vast sums of taxpayers' money at stake, skilled senior leadership is in place. The government will have to move fast to ensure that this gap at the top is swiftly filled and businesses are reassured that the right person is in the job. We need greater transparency from the SNP government when such large sums of money are involved. The Scottish National Investment Bank was also asked for an explanation in light of today's row, but refused to expand on what it said last week. Willie Watt, chair of the board, said the board would like to thank Ailey for the contribution she has made as we successfully launched the Scottish National Investment Bank. We have a strong team in place that remains focused on investing to deliver growth, jobs and enhance social and environmental benefits for the people of Scotland. Having committed almost £200 million since launch, we are in an excellent position to deliver on our objectives and I am proud of the significant investments we have made so far. We have lots more to do and I look forward to continuing the bank's mission to support the transition to net zero, extend equality of opportunity and harness innovation to enable the people of Scotland to flourish. This article is by Tom Gordon. Recorded from the Herald on the 2nd of March 2022 from the Sports Section. Celtic and Rangers at Sydney Super Cup, fixtures, kickoff times and what both clubs have said by Aidan Smith. It was confirmed this morning that both Celtic and Rangers will take place in the Sydney Super Cup this November. The four-team tournament, which starts on November 16th, during the break in domestic football for the World Cup, will also feature A-League Sydney team Sydney FC and Western Sydney Wanderers, the Australian top flight revealed. The tournament will see Hoops manager Ange Postacoglu returning to his homeland and the two-time A-League winner and former Socceroos boss admitted it would be an emotional trip. Here's what we know about the tournament so far. When do Celtic and Rangers play at the Sydney Super Cup? The Glasgow duel will face off against each other on Sunday, November 20th. Before that game, Rangers will have faced Western Sydney Wanderers on Wednesday, November 16th, and Celtic will face Sydney FC, but the time and date of this fixture has not been confirmed. Where will the Sydney Super Cup take place? All matches will be played at the hugely impressive Accor Stadium, which is best known for hosting athletic events and the ceremonies at the Sydney 2000 Olympics. It has since been remodelled and hosts a variety of different sports in front of a capacity of 83,500. What have Celtic said about the Sydney Super Cup? On the official club website, a statement read, Celtic are set to play in a four-team tournament at the end of November as Ange Postacoglu takes his team home to Australia. The Hoops boss, who is the most successful manager in Australian football history at both club and international level, will head home with his Celtic squad during the five-week break in domestic football later this year due to the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Celtic have long had a very strong support base in Australia, which has only been strengthened since Ange Postacoglu's arrival at the club back in June this year. And Celtic fans in Australia will be delighted to get the opportunity to cheer on the Hoops live in in the four-team tournament. For the Celtic manager, the trip to Australia will be beneficial to his squad ahead of the resumption of competitive football in the middle of December, while he is also looking forward to returning home. What have Rangers said about the Sydney Super Cup? On the official club website, a statement read, 
Rangers will return to Australia this November with the club delighted to have accepted an invitation to the inaugural Sydney Super Cup, which will include the first ever international Old Firm fixture. With domestic action taking an extended break for the FIFA World Cup in Qatar, the Light Blues will travel down under for a hugely ex- two hugely exciting matches in front of what is sure to be an outstanding Rangers support of both locals and those travelling from further afield. Jerry's kick-off with a clash against Western Sydney Wanderers on Wednesday, November 16th. Then, on Sunday 20th of November, they will take part in the first Old Firm match to take place outside of Glasgow, with Celtic the opposition. Both matches will be played at the hugely impressive Accra Stadium, which is best known for hosting athletics events and the ceremonies at the Sydney 2000 Olympics. It has since been remodelled and hosts a variety of different sports in front of a capacity of 83,500. Rangers enjoy a phenomenal following across the globe with vast support in regions such as North America, Australia, the Far East and the Middle East, among many others. Rangers recently entered strategic club partnerships in the USA, India and Germany and opened the world-leading Rangers Soccer Soccer Academy in Abu Dhabi. The club has an estimated 3 million supporters globally and registered supporters alone have grown beyond 650. Australia is home to the Oceania Rangers Supporters Association, ORSA, which includes supporter clubs from throughout the Oceania region and beyond. Backed by the NSW New South Wales government through its tourism and major events agency destination New South Wales, alongside events promoters TEG Sport, Left Field Live and Venues Live, the event will mark the return of major global events to Sydney's shores as NSW continued to lead the way in hosting major sport and entertainment events. The article was by Aidan Smith. Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday 2nd of March 2022. Arts and Entertainments. Books Do Furnish a Life by Richard Dawkins. Featherweight by Mike Kitson. Love If That's What It Is by Marika Shermer. By Alistair Mabbitt. Featherweight. Mike Kitson. Canongate. £8.99. It's the black country at the height of the Industrial Revolution and nine-year-old Annie of Romany heritage is sold for six guineas to barefaced boxer Bill Perry, also known as the Tipton Slasher. Bill buys a pub, but the business is failing as fast as his health. When his attempt to make some money by returning to boxing goes awry, Annie steps into the ring to take his place, setting in motion her rise to pugilistic fame and a breathless series of picaresque adventures. Kitson has based this fiction on his own ancestors, shaping fanciful family folklore into an even more fantastical novel. Featherweight is by no means a literary heavyweight, but it is great fun, an enormously diverting tale that gives us some memorable characters headed by a heroine worth cheering for, and some visceral fight scenes set against a well-realised industrial revolution backdrop, illuminated by the glow of furnaces and heavy with soot. Love if that's what it is. Marika Shermer. World Editions, £13.99 After 25 years, Terry feels bored and stifled by her marriage to the dull, predictable David. So she leaves him and their two daughters to be with her more adventurous lover, Lucas. David, 12-year-old Ali, and 15-year-old Krista are devastated. Left to cope in their separate ways with the breakup of their family and Terry's abrupt departure, while Krista embarks on her own first relationship in the wake of this huge upheaval. David starts seeing another woman, single mother Sev, but has to reconcile himself to the fact that she doesn't want a long-term relationship. All the parties involved, in fact, want something different, 
and Shermer's insightful and engrossing analysis of their complex situation, translated from the Dutch by Hester Velmans, keeps all their perspectives in mind as they adjust to the rearrangement of their family unit, and Terry and David both pursue goals which may ultimately be unattainable. Books do furnish a life. Richard Dawkins, Penguin, £10.99. Science writing is an often undervalued skill. Carl Sagan, to pick one example, inspired an incalculable number of people through his words, and he was far from alone in combining an elegant lucid prose style with a sense of wonder and purpose in a way that made him a thrilling communicator. Exploring the space where science meets literature, Richard Dawkins' new book is a miscellany of introductions and forewords written for various other people's books, bolstered by some reviews and interviews with the likes of Steven Pinker, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Christopher Hitchens. Dawkins' stock has fallen dramatically in recent years following some problematic public statements and the spikier, more ill-tempered tone that has crept into his uncompromising defence of atheism. But here, as he graciously praises the communicators he admires, his own articulate and eloquent contributions display the very blend of passion and reason it takes to rank alongside them. By Alistair Mabbitt. The Herald Scotland, Thursday, 3rd of March, 2022. Nicholas Sturgeon, Why I'm Proud to be Labelled a Dangerous Woman. By Alison Rowett, Senior Politics and Features Writer. She has been called the most dangerous woman in Britain, but now Nicola Sturgeon has learned to embrace the title, a new collection of essays reveals. Writing in Dangerous Women, 50 Reflections on Women, Power and Identity, Scotland's First Minister recalls how the Sun and Daily Mail labelled her as such during the 2015 general election. Although the term was meant to give pause to those who might have been considering voting for the NSP, it could also be viewed as yet another pejorative term used to minimise women's achievements, she writes. Terms like dangerous can belittle the positions of women in power by implying that we should be feared. But when she considered other women who had been branded dangerous, including Angela Merkel, then Chancellor of Germany, and Shami Chakrabarti, former Director of Liberty, now a Labour peer, she decided to take great pride in the description. To be counted among those women felt like a validation of my challenge to the status quo. The Dangerous Women Project at the University of Edinburgh was set up in 2016. Over the years it has asked women around the world to write essays on what the term dangerous means to them. Other contributors to the collection, published today by Unbound, include playwright Joe Clifford, and award-winning novelist Irinison Okoji. Miss Sturgeon names Margaret MacDonald and Winnie Ewing as the role models who inspired her to go into politics and become her party's leader. I am sure they too were seen as threatening to the political establishment of the day. Of Margaret MacDonald's landmark victory in the Glasgow Govan by-election of 1973, the First Minister writes, She faced blatant sexism and harassment as all women MPs suffered at the time, and dealt with this in her own inimitable way. Promising to lend her support to the next generation of dangerous women in Scotland, the First Minister concludes, I want young girls to know that they should always aspire to be their best and challenge the status quo. When we are dangerous, we can change the world and our place in it. During the same 2015 campaign, then male columnist Piers Morgan up the ante to call Miss Sturgeon the world's most dangerous woman. 
because she opposed the renewal of the Trident nuclear weapons system. This diminutive but sharp-witted woman has rampaged through the UK election campaign like a mini-Godzilla, he complained. The Sun mocked up a picture of her as a pop star Miley Cyrus, clad in a tartan bikini and swinging on a wrecking ball, a stunt Miss Sturgeon condemned as sexist. This article was written by Alison Rowett. The Herald Scotland, Thursday, 3rd of March, 2022. News. World Book Day. Royal Mail unveils special post boxes and new post stamps. By Kieran Doody, UK Trending Editor. Royal Mail has unveiled special post boxes that can be seen across the UK to mark World Book Day. The post boxes feature lines from books by authors including Greg James and Chris Smith, Nadia Hussein, Dara McAnulty and Martin Waddle, with artwork from the likes of Harry Potter cover illustrator Johnny Duddle. The post boxes are located in Luton, Nanerch in Flintshire, Dundee and Castle Wellen in Northern Ireland, close to the places of significance to either the writers or their work. Royal Mail is also marking the 25th anniversary of World Book Day with a special postmark. David Gold of Royal Mail said, The UK has produced many world-class authors and illustrators who have written books and created characters that have inspired and entertained children and adults for generations. We are proud to be involved in the celebration of World Book Day's 25th anniversary and to honour the works from some of the UK's best-loved authors and illustrators on our postboxes. Cassie Chatterton, Chief Executive of World Book Day, said, We are delighted to be celebrating authors and illustrators from across the UK to mark our 25th anniversary with Royal Mail. It's lovely to see some of our £1 book authors and illustrators featured and we hope the post boxes inspire more families to read together and showcase just a few of the wonderful books available for children to explore. This article is written by Kieran Doody. Recorded from the Herald on the 3rd of March 2022, from the sports section. Celtic fixtures score and results as Ange Postacoglu's side take on Livingston and Premiership, by Aidan Smith. After Sunday's 0-0 draw with Hibs, Celtic bounced back to winning ways on Wednesday night as they defeated St Mirren at Parkhead. In doing so, they kept their three-point distance at the top of the Scottish Premiership, with Rangers in second place. The games are coming thick and fast and next up for Ange Postacoglu's side is a trip to Livingston, who are on a fine run of form. Celtic fixtures. Sunday this March the 6th at 12pm. Livingston versus Celtic, Almondvale. Saturday March 12th, 3pm. Dundee United versus Celtic, Tannadice. Saturday March 19th, 3pm. Celtic versus Ross County, Celtic Park. Sunday, April 3rd, 12pm. Rangers vs Celtic, Ibrox. Saturday, April 9th, 3pm. Celtic vs St Johnson, Celtic Park. Celtic results. Thursday, February 17th, Celtic 1, Bodo Glimt 3. Sunday, February 20th, Celtic 3, Dundee 2. Thursday, February 24th, Bodo Glimt 2, Celtic 0. Sunday, February 27th, Hibs nil, Celtic nil. Wednesday, March 2nd, Celtic 2, St Mirren nil. The article was by Aidan Smith. Recorded from the Herald on the 3rd of March 2022, from the sports section. 
Rangers fixtures, score and results as Ibrox outfit take on Aberdeen in Scottish Premiership by Aidan Smith. Rangers bounce back to winning ways in the Scottish Premiership with victory over St Johnson on Wednesday night. It was far from a vintage performance by Giovanni Van Bronckhorst's men, but the three points were the most important thing. Rangers are still three points behind Celtic, but the win and clean sheet against Saints will have given the Govan outfit confidence. Rangers fixtures Saturday, March 5th, 3pm. Rangers vs Aberdeen. Ibrox. Thursday, March 10th, 8pm. Rangers vs Red Star Belgrade. Ibrox. Sunday, March 13th, 4pm. Dundee vs Rangers. Dens Park Scottish Cup. Thursday, March 17th, 5.45pm. Red Star Belgrade vs Rangers. Red Star Stadium. Sunday, March 20th, 12pm. Dundee vs Rangers. Dens Park. Rangers results. Thursday, February 17th, Borussia Dortmund 2, Rangers 4. Sunday, February 20th, Dundee United 1, Rangers 1. Thursday, February 24th, Rangers 2, Dortmund 2. Sunday, February 27th, Rangers 2, Motherwell 2. Wednesday, March 2nd, St. Johnson 0, Rangers 1. That article was by Aidan Smith. From the Herald Scotland, Thursday the 3rd of March 2022, from the Voices section, Mark Smith, Labour's Thistle is not a symbol of my Scotland, by feature writer Mark Smith. I'm rooting for Anna Sarwar, I really am. He's personable, he's bright, and he says a lot of the right things, but I just cannot get my head around the Scottish Labour leader's choice of a new logo for his party. A thistle? Really? Is that it? The first obvious problem with the idea is that the design of it is so old-fashioned. It looks like about like the logo of a municipal leisure centre in Motherwell in the 1980s. The colours are all wrong as well. Not red, not purple, not pink, not anything. The second problem is that the logo has been inspired by focus groups. Put a group of Scots in a room with a tea and chocolate digestives and they will moan about how crap everything is and this is what has happened with Labour. They've asked people what they think of their Rose logo and they've said it is a bit old, bit tired and a wee bit English. The third issue, and this one is the most annoying in a way, is that the thistle is also such a hackneyed way to represent Scotland. Why not go the whole hog and have the thistle held aloft by wee Jimmy Cranky with a half-eaten scotch pie in in her gub? These things, like the thistle, have done their bit, but they have nothing more to give. More seriously, The other reason Scottish Labour has ended up with a thistle is because of its existential problems. They're accused of being red Tories, they're accused of being subservient to London, and they're accused of being insufficiently Scottish in some way that the SNP and many of its supporters would define Scottish. Some Scots put our noses down to the Labour rose and smell England. And therefore, Scottish Labour must be nationalistic, but not too nationalistic, and take action, but not too much action. And so they order a rebranding. The problem for Mr Sarwar, however, is what to replace the red rose with. I guess he might have gone full on nationalist and used a saltire, perhaps with a subtle wash of red. Something, anything, to prove Labour is profoundly Scottish. But the problem with the saltire is, it's already been cleaned by the other guys. It is already draped, like a bit of old tat, round Nicholas Sturgeon's shoulders. Labour also fears that getting too close to the saltire means getting too close to independence. 
In choosing a nationalistic symbol, Mr Sarwar also has to strike a delicate balance with the rest of his party in the UK. He is trying to say that his party is nationalistically Scottish, but also British and Unionist, and that's a difficult concept for some Scots to get their heads around. Many of them, many of them the kind of Scots Mr Sarwar needs to attract. The question now, after the rebrand, is whether a sign of difference with the, with the rest of Labour, reflected in a new logo, will make the problem better or worse. My instinct is that it will probably make things worse in the end, and that Mr Sarwar could have made things easier for himself by choosing a logo that reflected something broader and more outward-looking. Indeed, perhaps the more traditional socialist base and many liberals would have preferred it that way. The other problem for Mr Sarwar is that voters like me get totally the Scottish and English and British thing, the thistle and the rose in the same garden, but some voters with a narrow view of Scottishness may see Labour's new thistle as Scottish but not Scottish enough. I'm not pretending that the rebranding has been easy for Mr Sarwar. He has my sympathy. But ditching the rose was an opportunity to choose something progressive rather than nationalistic, modern rather than old-fashioned, something bigger than a nation. But instead we have the hoary old thistle, exhausted from its years of service as a metaphor. I have to say, the thistle doesn't say much to me about my Scotland, but there's a bigger problem. It doesn't say much about Mr Sarwar's labour either. Now it's an opinion piece by Mark Smith. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 3rd of March 2022. Arts and Entertainments. In Search of Mary Seacole by Helen Rappaport. An Eloquent Portrait of an Extraordinary Woman by Trevor Royal. In Search of Mary Seacole. The Making of a Cultural Icon. Helen Rappaport. Simon & Schuster, £20, review by Trevor Royal. Rarely, if ever, has a biography been given a more apt title. Usually when authors embark on a biographical project of this magnitude, they will have a pretty fair idea of what tools and materials they will require. A workable and carefully preserved archive would be a good starting point, and it would be still better if it contained previously unseen material. Even a trustworthy timeline would be helpful, as would be previously published books in the same subject. But that's not the case here. Helen Rappaport is a seasoned writer with at least a dozen well-respected books to her name and is thoroughly at home in the world of letters. Her subject too is hardly unfamiliar. In 2004, Mary Seacole was voted Britain's best-known black woman. Her visage has appeared in first-class stamps, statues have been erected in her honour, and her work as a nurse in the Crimean War, 1854-1856, is beyond dispute. In short, in an age when the black contribution to British history is an acknowledged fact, the name of Mary Seacole should need no introduction following long years of unjustified neglect. Except that as Rappaport discovered when she embarked on her quest, very little is known about Seacole beyond her Crimean exploits and the fact that she was born and raised as a Creole woman in Jamaica. She even wrote an unrevealing autobiography called Wonderful Adventures of Mary Seacole in Many Lands, and her name is present in most Crimean war histories. But beyond that, her life was essentially a blank canvas. That much became clear to Rappaport from the outset of her quest. Indeed, it was the serendipitous acquisition of a naive portrait of Seacole that sparked her original interest. On first inspection, she admits that she was overtaken by a powerful sense of mission to make Seacole's story better known. So much so that her first instinct was to loan the painting to the National Portrait Gallery in London, 
before starting to unravel Seacole's life. This proved to be no easy matter, although some facts were sacrosanct. Seacole was born in Jamaica in 1805 and her birth name was Grant, Mary herself admitting that my father was a soldier of an old Scotch family. So far so good, 19th century Jamaica was a strategically important colonial possession, prized for its sugar plantations, many of which were run by Scots. But with Grant being the 10th most common surname in Jamaica, Rappaport encountered their first brick wall, a hurdle not helped by the British Army's management of the resident garrison. Regiments were constantly being changed or renumbered, records were scant or inaccurate, and matters were not helped by the island's insalubrious conditions and unhealthy climate. Far from being disheartened by the paucity of information or weighed down by the frequently contradictory facts, Rappaport seems to have been energised by them and from an early stage in her task, the narrative quickly takes on the complexion of a detective story. Nothing is too modest or too unpromising to be put to one side. Setbacks are shrugged off and disappointments are either ignored or confronted and then addressed. For evidence, just read the promising chapter, entitled The Myth of Blundell Hall in which Rappaport disposes of many infelicities surrounding the Grant family's involvement in the lodging house business in Jamaica's capital, Kingston, including an oft-repeated slur that their enterprise was run for immoral purposes. All the while, young Mary Grant was waiting and watching and honing her skills as a healer or doctoress to use her own favoured description of her work, gaining her expertise from the use of holistic herbal remedies allied to some sturdy common sense. This has led some commentators and supporters to claim that Seacole was a pioneering professional nurse whose exploits were ignored due to ignorance brought about by racial prejudice, but Rappaport will have none of it. While acknowledging that Seacole was not trained in the modern medical sense, she makes a powerful case for upholding her reputation as a nurse in the wildest possible interpretation of the role, whose skill, patience and kindness saved many lives. She also adds that, from all the available evidence, Mary Seacole was a hard-headed businesswoman who took every advantage of the possibilities that came her way and benefited as a result. In other words, and in another age, she would have been recognised as a steely and effective networker who made a point of winning friends in high places, and what is more, keeping them. She first came to the fore in the Isthmus of Panama, a villainous-looking little place, during the Californian gold rush in the Sacramento Valley, where she had to deal with the ravages of cholera, yet still sensed the business opportunities by opening a hotel-cum-hospital to cater for the needs of the many prospectors. This proved to be a good business model, which she adapted during the episode, which brought her fame through her services as a nurse during the Crimean War, the ill-judged conflict fought between Britain and France on one side and Russia on the other. Hailed by the British troops as Mother Seacole, Mary had no right to be near the battlefield and had to pay her own way to get there, losing a fortune in the process, but she clearly felt an inner compunction to be in that bleak Ukrainian peninsula, which witnessed some of the worst blunders in modern warfare. Inevitably, comparisons have been made with Florence Nightingale, who also achieved fame for her nursing exploits in the Crimea, but this is unfair to both women. Nightingale came from a well-to-do English family and enjoyed connections at the highest level of government, whereas Seacole had to struggle for everything she achieved. Yet both had a vivid understanding of the needs of their patients and were united by a burning desire to improve their lot. Rappaport's eloquently argued work sets the record straight by revealing the life story of a most extraordinary woman. By Trevor Royal. The Herald, Friday the 4th of March 2022, News. 
former Orange Order leader, stands for Scottish Labour in May elections. This article is by Tom Gordon. The former world leader of the Orange Order has been selected to stand for Scottish Labour in the local elections. Henry Dunbar, who was also Grand Master of the Grand Orange Lodge of Scotland, will be a candidate for North Lanarkshire Council in May. The move comes as Scottish Labour vies with the Scottish Tories for unionist votes in the west of Scotland. Labour insisted all its candidates would be open and tolerant, but the SNP said the party had opened the door to the former leader of a deeply divisive organisation. The Orange Order describes itself as the oldest and biggest Protestant fraternity in Scotland, with members who are bonded together to promote the ideals of our faith. However, it is regarded by some as anti-Catholic. Anna Sarwar, who today opens his first in-person conference as Scottish Labour leader, has said anti-Catholic racism is real and abhorrent and must be confronted and challenged. Mr Dunbar will be one of two Labour candidates in the four-member Airdrie North Ward, where the party currently has one councillor, meaning his election is not assured. Scottish Labour already has a senior orange man in neighbouring Airdrie South, councillor Ian McNeill, who has been Executive Officer of the Orange Order in Scotland since 2019. North Lanarkshire is run by a minority Labour administration and is a key SNP target this spring. Mr Dunbar, 66, was Scotland's most senior Orange man from 2010 to 2016 as Grand Master and the most senior in the world from 2015 to 2018 after being elected its imperial president. A frequent visitor to Orange events in Northern Ireland, he helped organise the biggest anti-independence event of the 2014 referendum, a march of 15,000 Orange men and women in Edinburgh on the weekend before the vote. A Channel 4 News report of the gathering showed him telling the crowd, Mr Salmond, you will not con the, the loyal Protestant people of Scotland. No to independence and no to surrender to separatism. The report included reporter Michael Crick challenging Mr Dunbar over a banner on the march saying Protestant action no property. Mr Dunbar replied, well, I didn't see the banner no property, but we would suggest that banner shouldn't have been there today. A retired salesman, Mr Dunbar told the Herald, He'd been asked by local people to stand and wanted to help the community first and foremost. He said, I do like the values of Labour and the leaders they have just now, Keir Starmer and Anna Sarwar. I think the Labour Party is all about equality and fairness. That's sadly lacking in politics at the moment. Labour support the union and I personally support the union because I think we're stronger in the union. Asked if his links to the Orange Order could influence how people will vote, he said the Orange Order, as an institution, doesn't really get involved in politics. They don't tell their members what to vote, and I certainly wouldn't suggest to the members that they vote for me. They take me on my merit. I believe I can do a good job for the constituents of the Airdrie North area. He went on. If I'm fortunate to be elected for the Scottish Labour Party, all constituents will be the same to me. At the end of the day, I will support all of the constituents. Nothing else comes into it. 
it's all about supporting the communities. I don't see why the Orange Order should come into it. I'm not standing for the Orange Order. I'm standing for Scottish Labour. I'm a member of the Labour Party. I'm standing for the good of the constituents. I feel very passionate about that. I'm standing for these people and it doesn't matter to me what creed or religion or colour they are. I'll be standing 100% for every single one of them. An SNP spokesperson said Anna Sarwar claims to promote tolerance in politics, but in desperation for council candidates, Scottish Labour has opened its doors to the ex-leader of a deeply divisive organisation. Only the SNP has a positive vision to take Scotland forward. That's why on the 5th of May, there has to be a vote for the SNP. A Scottish Labour spokesman said, All of Scottish Labour's candidates have promised to reflect and uphold the party's aims and values as a tolerant, open and democratic party for the people of Scotland. Mr Dunbar will be held to the same high standard as all Labour candidates across Scotland. This article is by Tom Gordon. The Herald, Friday the 4th of March 2022, News. How keeping Scotland plugged in remains a huge challenge. This article is by Karen Turner of the Scottish Future series. Three months on, the buzz around COP26 might finally have died down, but for those charged with delivering actions to avert the worst impacts of the climate crisis, the real hard work has only just begun. In Scotland, targets have been set in law to meet a 75% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, ahead of reaching net zero emissions by 2045. While the mid-century net zero target is the one that has grabbed headlines and is more familiar to people, it's really that earlier target, now only eight years away, that is focusing government thinking. In Scotland, we have made strong progress to reducing the emissions associated with the electricity we generate here, with a vast growth in renewable electricity production and the closing of Scotland's remaining coal power stations, the last remnants of which were demolished by the First Minister herself late last year. However, the challenge is more complex than this, both in terms of how renewable generation needs to grow in a wider supply context, if we are to meet our needs, when even the Scottish wind doesn't blow all the time, and sometimes even blows too much, and how those needs are already changing and need to change further. Firstly, on the question of electricity supply, continued growth in our renewables capacity is important for both Scotland's energy system and economy. New offshore wind sites distributed around Scotland's coasts could play a huge role in what will be an increasingly electric future and are already having a positive economic impact with auctioning of the seabed that will host the generating sites, having secured £700 million in fees to the Scottish public purse. The challenge will be holding companies to account in delivering the supply chain commitments promised in their bids so that further and sustained economic benefits can be realised. However, making the most of our expanding renewables capacity while ensuring that the growing and changing electricity needs of the Scottish people are met at all times, requires that Scotland, whatever her constitutional future, 
plays a fully integrated, affordable and value-generating role in the GB electricity system. Moreover, we are likely to need to complement what we can deliver through our increasingly renewable electricity system with delivery of other low-carbon fuel options and delivering our energy service needs. Here, hydrogen could play a key role in decarbonising both heat and transport, and this isn't just a substitute or alternate to electricity, with potential for wind farms to produce it when we have excess wind. What of our changing needs? Let's consider transport first. The Scottish Government has set a target to end the sale of new petrol and diesel vehicles within the coming decade, driving the market for electric vehicles, EVs, as the charged mileage range of EVs improves and car manufacturers slowly make electric vehicles more cost competitive, the mass uptake of EVs continues to become a tangible prospect. However, this requires that people can plug in their EVs for charging. But development of the charging network has been slow, with some nervousness around how the electricity network will cope with need to plug in potentially over 2 million vehicles. Electricity network companies have been pitching proposals for network upgrades to the UK energy regulator Ofgem. One of Ofgem's concerns is value and affordability for consumers, where all electricity network investment costs are recovered through energy bills. Our research at the Centre for Energy Policy has shown that while some wider sustained economic benefits could be realised from growing the domestic electricity sector to enable the shift towards EVs and away from import-intensive petrol and diesel, there will be a range of cost and price pressures for consumers. There are, of course, also challenges for the UK public purse, where the tax take from fuel duty must be replaced, which could ultimately have implications for the cost-facing people running their EVs. The second big needs challenge is how we heat our homes where emissions reductions must line up with increased affordability, particularly for well-off households. Here, we desperately need to ramp up delivery and uptake of residential energy efficiency programmes to reduce emissions, generally lower household energy bills and close the historical gap between gas and electricity prices even where a shift to electric heating systems may deliver more physical energy efficiency. However, the rollout of those electric heating systems is perhaps the biggest challenge. As it stands, only 11% of Scotland's households have a renewable or low emission heating system, such as a heat pump or electric storage heating. In their heat in building strategy published ahead of COP26, the Scottish Government set out a pressing need to ensure that the majority of homes not connected to the mains gas grid and a million of those that are have zero carbon heating systems by 2030. While conversion of the gas network to carry low carbon hydrogen may be a solution for some homes, but requiring reserved UK government decision making potentially not forthcoming until 2026, a rapid rollout of electric heating systems will be required. This is a huge challenge. On the user side, it requires a quick ramp up in the installation of renewable heating systems, such as heat pumps, 
from 3,000 annually today to a total of 124,000 systems between 2021 and 2026. On the electricity supply side, it adds to the challenge and costs of increasing network capacity. This then brings us back to the central challenge of coordination between national and devolved governments, electricity generators and network operators, and the GB National Grid in ensuring that Scotland's renewables capacity can actually deliver what the people of Scotland need it to do. Crucially, this needs to be done in an affordable way, particularly for the in excess of 600,000 Scottish homes currently living in fuel poverty. This article is by Karen Turner, who is a professor and director at the Centre for Energy Policy, University of Strathclyde. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 4th of March 2022, from the sports section, David Goodwillie, Clyde End loan move for striker after stadium ban threat by reporter Jodie Harrison. Controversial striker David Goodwillie's return to Clyde is over after bosses at the football club announced they were ending his contract just days after agreeing a loan deal for him. The the Singed Scottish League One side released a statement late on Thursday announcing they were in the process of terminating the loan agreement for the player. That came in the wake of North Lanarkshire Council, which owns Broadwood Stadium where Clyde play their home games, announcing it was banning the footballer from the ground. Clyde only confirmed on Tuesday that they had signed the 32-year-old, who was found by a judge in a civil case in 2017 to have raped a woman, on loan from Wraith Rovers until the end of the season. The move came after Goodwillie's move to Wraith sparked outrage, with the club later admitting we got it wrong with the signing. He returned to Clyde, where he had played for several years and was previously club captain. North Lanarkshire Council then announced it was banning him from entering the ground. The local authority told the football club, Goodwillie must not be permitted access to the stadium for any purpose, with immediate effect. A spokesman for the council warned, Should Mr Goodwillie enter the stadium, we will consider the contract to have been breached and we will take immediate steps to terminate it. In addition, we've informed Clyde FC that the council intends not to renew the lease with the club when the contract for the use of Broadwood Stadium expires in May 2023. In light of that, Clyde released a statement at 10.26pm on Thursday, which said simply, The club are tonight in the process of terminating the loan agreement with Wraith Rovers for David Goodwillie. Clyde's signing of Goodwillie on loan also prompted its entire women's team to quit in protest. The general manager and the secretary of the women's team resigned, with the players all in agreement that we no longer wish to play for Clyde FC. In a statement they said, As a group of female footballers, all we wish to do is play the sport that we love, but due to the current circumstances, we are unable to do this. And that article was by Jodie Harrison. From the Herald Scotland, Friday the 4th of March 2022, from the sports section, Frank Lampard reflects on Nathan Patterson's Everton debut by Ewan Payton. Frank Lampard has lifted the lid on his decision to substitute Scotland star Nathan Patterson at half-time during the Everton's win over Boreham Wood in the FA Cup. It was Patterson's first appearance for the Toffees since arriving from Rangers in the summer in a deal believed to be worth around £16 million. 
The 20-year-old was deployed in a right wing-back role as Lampard played three centre-backs. However, while it was great for the ex-year youngster to finally get his debut for the Premier League club, it didn't go totally to plan, as he was subbed off at the break. Richarlison came off the bench with the game goalless. A second-half double from Salomon Rondon saw the Goodison Parkside into the next round, and Lampard stood by his decision to haul off the Scotland cap following the game. Lampard told the Everton FC website, We played too slow first half. Bowden Wood came here with an idea to stop us playing, and if you play slow, they can stop it. I didn't enjoy that, but a good little viewing for me to see those things and change at half-time. Generally, the whole team has a different tempo in the second half, and were comfortable in the second half. We wanted an extra player up the pitch who could give them problems, receive the ball and cause them problems. It wasn't necessarily a slam on Nathan Patterson. It's not nice in a debut. I thought he did okay. But from the way we were playing with our wing-backs, I wanted him to break that line and he wasn't. It allowed them to sit back. So the formation changed to help us. And that article is by Ewan Payton. The Herald, Monday the 7th of March 2022. News. Attainment gap. SMP under fire over university entry rates. This article is by John Paul Holden. The gap in university entry rates between school leavers from the most and least deprived areas has widened since 2018, according to alarming figures. Political opposition leaders have seized on the data, accusing SNP ministers of allowing the trend to move in the wrong direction. They also said the government was letting down young people. Just over 29% of leavers classed as being in the most deprived quintile under the Scottish Index of Multiple Deprivation were in higher education, HE, approximately three months after the end of the school year in 2020-2021. This compares with a rate of 65.1% for those in the least deprived quintile. The 35.9 percentage point gap is up very marginally on the figure of 35.8 recorded for 2019-2020 and has risen from 33.4 in 2018, oblique 2019. Nicola Sturgeon said before the Holyrood election in 2016 that improving education would be her government's number one priority. She added the goal of the SNP will be to substantially close the attainment gap in the next parliament and to eliminate it within a decade. However, an Audit Scotland report published last year warned that progress towards this aim has been limited. Government officials stress the latest school leavers data should be treated with caution given changes in pupil assessment and certification during the COVID pandemic. They also point out that the higher education entry gap is down compared with 2009-2010 when it was 39.4 percentage points. But political opponents have insisted the increase between 2018-19 and 2020-2021 is evidence of persistent inequity. Willie Rennie, education spokesperson for the Scottish Liberal Democrats, said... These figures suggest that the higher education entry gap is now moving in the wrong direction. Five years ago, Nicola Sturgeon said education was her top priority. I don't think many people believed her then and even fewer will believe it now when they see these figures.
Scotland has an enviable set of higher education institutions, but too often these are not accessible to everyone. The Scottish Government needs to turn this widening gap around. Scottish Conservative Pam Goschel, Shadow Minister for Further and Higher Education, Youth Employment and Training, was also critical. It's completely unacceptable that youngsters from our most deprived communities continue to be let down by the SNP government, she said. No one's future prospects should be determined by where they live, and it's a damning indictment of the SNP that this is the case. SNP ministers vowed to close the attainment gap, but these figures show that they are making little or no progress. Without proper investment to help pupils catch up and a clear plan to restore consistent standards in our education system, much of Scotland's youth risk being left behind. The Scottish Government insisted the higher education entry gap was narrower than it had been in the past. A spokesman said in 2009-2010, the gap between leavers from the most and least deprived areas in higher education three months after the end of the school year was 39.4 percentage points. It is now 35.9 percentage points. A record of 282,875 students enrolled at Scottish universities in 2020-2021 with a record high 16.7% of full-time first degree entrance to university coming from the 20% most deprived areas of Scotland in 2020-2021. This has exceeded the Interim Commission on Widening Access target to have 16% by 2021. The spokesman also said the Scottish Government remained committed to supporting children and young people impacted by poverty to access the same opportunities as their more affluent peers. He added, That is why we are investing £1 billion over the course of this Parliament to improve the attainment of pupils impacted by poverty. Our refreshed Scottish Attainment Challenge empowers schools and councils to drive education recovery, accelerate progress in tackling the attainment gap, while allowing teachers the choice of providing additional mentoring and tutoring support for disadvantaged pupils who need it. All school pupils experiencing poverty will benefit from targeted funding in 2022-23 to help close the attainment gap. Our new fairer funding model was agreed with COSLA and directly measures household income, providing a precise count of children impacted by poverty. This article is by John Paul Holden. The Herald, Monday the 7th of March 2022. News. Queen would remain head of state in an independent Scotland. Ian Blackford. This is by Herald Scotland Online. The Queen would remain head of state in an independent Scotland, the SNP Westminster leader has confirmed. Speaking to the PA news agency, Ian Blackford rejected claims an independent Scotland could have a referendum on whether to retain the monarchy. SNP policy ahead of the 2014 referendum on independence was to retain the Queen as head of state if Scotland declared independence. Although since then, many individual members have called for the issue to be decided by a vote in the future. In 2020, SNP MP for Glasgow North Partick, 
Grady did not rule out axing the Queen as Scotland's sovereign during a talk at King's College London, as he claimed it would be for the people of Scotland to decide this eventually. When asked about the prospect of a plebiscite, Mr Blackford said the Queen will remain head of state in an independent Scotland. The MP for Ross, Skye and Lochaber also refused to say whether Andrew should be stripped of his Duke of York title as a result of this settlement of his legal battle with Virginia Gouffer. He said, I think it has been a challenging time for the Queen, hasn't it? I don't want to go into issues of individuals within the royal family. I think all of us have got to be responsible for our own obligations and responsibilities. This article is by Herald Scotland Online. The Herald, Monday the 7th of March 2022. News. Trident should be axed due to threat to world from nuclear weapons. This article is by Herald Scotland Online. Ian Blackford has reiterated the SNP's commitment to removing Trident, as he suggested the UK's nuclear deterrent should go precisely because there is a threat to the world from nuclear weapons. In an interview with the PA news agency, the SNP Westminster leader was asked whether Russia's invasion of Ukraine had changed his party's position on the nuclear deterrent. Russia has recently raised the spectre of a nuclear war, reporting that its land, air and sea nuclear forces were on high alert, following orders from President Vladimir Putin. NATO itself has no nuclear weapons, but three of its members do, the United States, the UK and France. Mr Blackford reiterated his party's commitment that the UK gets rid of its Scotland-based Trident nuclear deterrent, saying, No, the party position has not changed. Absolutely not at all, because there is a threat to the world from nuclear weapons. The idea that having nuclear weapons provides a deterrence that removes the threat is far-fetched, to say the least. Mr Blackford also rejected claims put forward by Defence Secretary Ben Wallace that an independent Scotland would be more vulnerable to terrorism threats and Russian aggression if it became independent. He said, well, I think he makes a lot of wrong assumptions. One of the wrong assumptions that he makes is that Scotland would be standing alone. Scotland wouldn't be standing alone. Mr Blackford added, The SNP Scottish Government is very clear that an independent Scotland, amongst other things, would seek to be a member of NATO. We would be alongside our friends or partners in the Western world, and we would want to make sure that we're taking our responsibilities for defence and security just as any other independent country does. On whether an independent Scotland would be able to join NATO, Mr Blackford appeared positive given its strategic importance. He said, I think NATO made it clear that it seeks to work with those that apply for membership. And I think, given our strategic importance and our desire to be a constructive voice within the family of nations of NATO, just as we would be back in Europe as well. Let's not forget the importance of defence and security in Europe. I look forward to the constructive discussions that we will have. This article is by Herald Scotland Online. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 7th of March 2022, from the sports section. Malcolm Mackay deserves all the plaudits for a remarkable job at Ross County. The Monday kickoff by James Morgan. 
Some rare praise for Malky. It is frowned upon if you say anything good about Malky Mackay these days, but here goes anyway. In recent weeks, it has become increasingly clear that the job the Ross County manager has been doing in Dingwall is pretty remarkable. County may have flirted with the relegation zone for most of the campaign, but due to the compacted nature of the tranche of teams between 4th and 10th in the Premiership, the Highlanders have flown up the table with a series of wins in recent weeks. They signed well during the summer, even providing prospective new players with information packs on places to live, eat and see in the Dingwall area. And those new arrivals, alloyed to some of those already there, have responded with Loney's Joseph Hunbull, Watford, and Ash Maynard Brewer, Charlton, excelling particularly, while Regan Charles Cook has scored more than some of the supposed biggest named strikers in Scotland. Such is the nature of the Cinch Premiership that County now sit one win off fourth place and a possible European berth next season, incredible given the perception that they were struggling a few weeks back. In truth, they have been playing well for most of the season, even when results were going against them. That is a testament to Mal Mackay. It is not entirely surprising that the 50-year-old has prospered in the job. His record in the Skybait Championship was impressive, winning Manager of the Year in 2013 after taking Cardiff City into the Premier League for the first time to add to an appearance in the League Cup final a season earlier. In private, he is an interesting, engaging individual who knows he made a mistake but who underwent equality and diversity training and yet continues to play for that error. Of course, the concept of rehabilitation has been a hot topic in Scottish football in the light of the ongoing David Goodwillie situation and there will always be those who have a problem with Mackay. But the two text messages he was ultimately censured for feel very much at the lower end of the scale, especially when compared to someone such as Davy Martindale at Livingston, who has been given redemption by fans and authorities alike following a drug dealing conviction. Hoyle should stick to politics. Interesting to note the intervention of Sir Lindsay Hoyle into the row surrounding Josh Taylor's controversial points win over Jack Catterall last week. Catterall is a constituent of Hoyle's in Chorley and the MP expressed his outrage that the result in a tweet last Sunday which read It was a disgraceful decision by two of the boxing referees. I will be speaking to the sports minister. The result is a travesty of justice. Fast forward a day and the British Boxing Board of Control announced it was launching an investigation into the fight. Hoyle, of course, doubles as the Speaker of the House, a job he has deemed utterly incapable of performing without resorting to some highly dubious decisions and cock-ups of his own. In November, he apologised for wrongly calling a British Asian MP Mohammed during a debate on racism in cricket. Then he had a bigger problem with Ian Blackford calling Boris Johnson a liar in Parliament than Johnson actually misleading Parliament itself. There are more, alas, the list is heading towards the same size as the number of Russian oligarchs who have secreted money into British society over the past two decades. Red Star Warning 
Red Star Belgrade warmed up for the Europa League last 16 encounter against Rangers with a thumping 5-0 victory over Novi Pazar yesterday afternoon. There's not much to read into that, of course. Dejan Stankovic's men have lost just once all season and were 4-0 up after 21 minutes against the team that is rooted to the bottom of the Superliga table after 26 matches. Former Rangers and Serbia defender Gordon Petric appeared in these pages in recent days, claiming Red Star had little chance against Rangers over the two legs, the first of which is on Thursday night. But one only needs to look at the Serbian side's form to see that there will be no pushovers. They have lost just once in 15 matches and topped the Europa League group containing Braga, Ludogorets and Midtjylland, Champions League conquerors of Celtic, to reach this phase. Yes, the expectation is that Giovanni van Bronckhorst's side will have too much for Red Star, but they have exited Europe twice in recent seasons at the hands of teams, Rapid Vienna and Slavia Prague, who, on paper at least, have looked inferior. Weary on Weir side. When Alex Neal succeeded Lee Johnson as manager of Sunderland on February the 11th, the Black Cats sat in fourth place, a mere two points behind the automatic promotion places. Sunderland had been very active during the January transfer window, bringing in a number of high-profile players, including Jermaine Defoe from Rangers and the former Celtic winger Patrick Roberts, and Johnson, once of Hearts and Kilmarnock, paid the price for a 6-0 defeat at Bolton Wanderers. But since then, it has hardly been a rose garden for Neil, who had been out of work since sacking by Preston last March. The defeats have dried up, but Sunderland have won just once since the Scott took charge and now find themselves outside of the playoff spots and 11 points adrift of the top two. All is not lost, but if the club is neurotic as Sunderland, it will be a little surprise if Neil's effort for the remainder of this campaign will ultimately be in vain. Warren deserves more respect. It took all of an hour for the announcement of Shane Warren's death on social media to turn into a commentary and how he was once a boyfriend of Liz Hurley and lavish praise subsequently followed. This is a man who had more than, th- than 700 wickets and 3,000 tests, having his list of greatest achievements reduced to the time he ploughed an English actress. Then there were those debating his vaccination status for some political point scoring. Newsflash, people died prematurely of heart attacks long before Covid. The overwhelming conclusion when venturing online to read comments these days is that more often than not it is just those making the observations have been untouched by any kind of personal tragedy themselves. There is nothing wrong with a bit of levity when it comes to death, of course but it seems that the times when the demise of a sportsman or woman was greeted with the kind of respect it deserved are long gone. 5. The number of games without a win at the Tony Macaroni Stadium that Celtic ended following a victory over Livingston yesterday. It is one of the peculiarities of modern football that no matter how many years that pass or the change in personnel, Teams have droughts for inexplicable reasons against particular foes. 
Psychological factors can be the greatest opponent a player or team can face in any given match, but this Celtic team seems to be made of stern stuff. And that was today's Monday kickoff, brought to you by James Morgan. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 7th of March 2022, from the sports section, Scott Brown considering Aberdeen exit in wake of Stephen Glass sacking, by James Kearney. Aberdeen midfielder Scott Brown is considering his future at Pataudry after Jim Goodwin replaced Stephen Glass as first team manager, according to reports. The 36-year-old moved to the Dons from Celtic last summer and was an important part of Glass's coaching team before the manager was relieved of his duties last month. St Mirren manager Jim Goodwin was named as Glass's successor and the Irishman dropped Brown from the matchday squad for the Saturday's 1-0 defeat at Ibrox, sparking rumours of a fallout between the pair. The Daily Mail report that Brown is weighing up his future in the North East following the change in the dugout, but Goodwin insisted at the weekend that there was no issue at all. Scott played on Wednesday, his first game for a wee while, after being out with a hamstring problem, and just had a wee bit of fatigue in his legs, Goodwin explained. We didn't want to risk him with the chance of possibly breaking down and finding himself out injured again. It was a sensible decision, I think, from the medical team, from Scott himself, and from me. And that was an article by James Kearney. From the Herald Scotland, Monday the 7th of March 2022, from the opinion section, Doug Marr, let's not destroy childhood with our own hang-ups. By Doug Marr. He'd probably had a rough day philosophising down the Agora in 5th century BC Athens. Whatever it was, old Socrates didn't half give Athenian whippersnappers both barrels. The children now love luxury. They have bad manners. They show disrespect for elders. Just in case we didn't get that point, children are now tyrants. As I get older, my inner Socrates emerges more regularly, albeit voiced less elegantly. You don't know your living, it's a particular favourite. Cue rolling of granddaughter eyes. Grandpa's tales of ice forming on the inside of a childhood bedroom windows and of shared outside toilets are greeted with merriment or only. Yes, things are different nowadays and, in many respects, better. Nevertheless, the continuing improvement we've long taken for granted is stalling. From the end of the Second World War, a generational escalator ensures young people could look forward to a more comfortable and secure lifestyle than those of their predecessors. Possibly, we baby boomers have had the best of it, riding the escalator nearly all the way to the top. For many of us, it was great to be young. More recently, improvements have become less certain. Indeed, the millennials born during the last two decades of the 20th century, are likely to be the first generation to earn less than their predecessors. For those born in the first decades of this century, the future may be even more problematic. When I meet with others of my generation, we rarely agree on much. One thing though, there is no unanimity. This is not a great time to be young. Something has gone wrong, and life is much more difficult for today's youngsters. 
The symptoms are there for all to see. We only need to consider the increasing numbers of young people who experience depression, suffer eating disorders and self-harm. Social media is blamed, perhaps unfairly for so many of today's ills, but there's little doubt it has increased the complexity and insecurity of growing up. Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram and the rest sell celebrity lifestyles to be envied and emulated. All of us fall short of these images of perfection, but age and maturity help us deal with it. That comfort is denied to the young if, as has been suggested, intellectual maturity doesn't occur until our mid-twenties. Yet, blaming it all on social media is far too easy. We adults need to look more honestly at our part in eroding the joy of being young. As recently as 2020, a report by the Children's Society suggested the UK's children are the unhappiest in Europe. Why should that be? Perhaps it's because parents in other parts of Europe have the common sense to allow their children to be children, or, more accurately, allow them to be children for longer. I know time and distance lend enchantment, but thinking back to my own school days, I can't recall classmates agonising over sexuality or gender. I accept they might have been suffering in silence, but, generally, it's adults, or, more accurately, some adults that are pushing the envelope. For example, what was the origin and thinking behind the diktat that prevents a primary teacher addressing her class collectively as girls and boys? I still can't get my head around the news that my old school no longer has a head boy and a head girl. Time and energy are wasted agonising over the merits of unisex toilets in schools. We're inventing problems for our children and it's little wonder they don't know if they're coming or going. We also need to listen to them about their fear of inadequacy and failures in examinations that will blight their futures. I don't recall anyone in my primary class having a nut allergy, using an inhaler, or having their behaviour altered by controlled substances like Ritalin. Is there a connection? We seem determined to rush youngsters through their childhood, exposing them prematurely to our own obsessions and hang-ups. For goodness sake, let's back off and let our children be children. And that was a comment piece by Doug Marr. Our columns are a platform for writers to express their opinions. They do not necessarily represent the views of the Herald. The Herald, Tuesday the 8th of March 2022. News. Celebration launched for forgotten scientist dubbed Scotland's Einstein. This article is by Martin Williams. He is the 19th century scientist described as Scotland's Einstein and seen by some as one of the nation's forgotten heroes. The work of physicist James Clark Maxwell paved the way for many of the modern devices we all take for granted, such as mobile phones, radio and television. He gave us the laws for one of the four fundamental forces of the universe, the theory of electromagnetism which caused a revolution in physics still felt today. The Scot is the only scientist responsible for explaining the forces behind the radio in your car, the magnets on your fridge, the heat of a warm summer day and the charge on a battery. His discoveries about how we see light and colour and his theory changed the way physicists perceived reality forever. 
He is seen as the father of electrical engineering and is even credited with creating the first colour image. Albert Einstein, the German-born theoretical physicist best known for developing the theory of relativity, considers him a genius. But while others were happy to flirt with the limelight and proclaim their genius, Mr Maxwell's retiring nature and untimely death left his contributions relatively uncelebrated. Now the Edinburgh-born's revolutionary work is to be commemorated in a new event aimed at shining a new light on his work. He will be the focus of a live-streamed tribute by Catherine Haymans, Scotland's Astronomer Royal, who believes his life and legacy remain relatively unknown even in Scotland. It forms part of Big Bang Week, which runs from March the 9th to 12th, an annual Children and Young People's Festival of Science and Astronomy, organised by the Wigton Festival Company. She will be joined by Martin Hendry, a professor of gravitational astrophysics and cosmology at the University of Glasgow, in a live discussion on Thursday to pay tribute to what they acknowledge is one of the greatest scientists of all time. Born in Edinburgh on June 13th, 1831, but raised in Dumfries and Galloway, Mr Maxwell is credited with achievements, including working out that any colour of light could be made by mixing different amounts of blue, green and red light. He showed this in 1855 on a colour triangle, and his theory is the idea behind how colour screens on computers and mobiles work. In 1861, he invented colour photography, taking photos using red, green and blue filters and then put the images together to make a colour image of a tartan ribbon. Ms Haymans discovered the totality of Mr Maxwell's achievements when she took her undergraduate degree at the University of Edinburgh, where she is now Professor of Astrophysics. Ms Haymans and Mr Hendry met at the birthplace of Mr Maxwell, 14 India Street, where they drew inspiration for the event. There they saw some of Mr Maxwell's birthplace memorabilia, including the zeotrope, which was used to create the illusion of moving images. Mr Maxwell managed to improve the original design by adding lenses to eliminate distortion. They also saw the Maxwell torch, created in 2015 by Mike Stone Lightning of Lonehead, Edinburgh, for the International Year of Light and celebrating the 150th anniversary of James Clark Maxwell's papers that linked electric and magnetic forces. Ms Haymans said, Martin and I are really looking forward to this event. We'll be broadcasting from the museum at James Clark Maxwell's birthplace in central Edinburgh, explaining his amazing scientific discoveries and what they mean for us today. Some of the greatest scientists come from Scotland or have Scottish heritage and we should celebrate them and make people more aware of them. So it's great that we have these festivals celebrating all the science that we're doing in Scotland. This article is by Martin Williams. The Herald, Tuesday the 8th of March 2022. News. Millions of pounds in gift cards to be given out in Glasgow to boost shops. This article is by Stuart Patterson. 
Millions of pounds worth of gift cards to be spent with Glasgow shops and businesses are to be given out to residents to help with COVID economic recovery. Glasgow City Council is planning to spend more than £9 million it received from the Scottish Government on giving out more than 80,000 cards worth £110 each. It is intended that gift cards through the Scotland Loves Local campaign will give a multi-million pound cash injection into the economy to boost city high streets and independent businesses. The cards can only be used in Scotland Loves Local businesses within the Glasgow boundary and almost 200 in the city are registered with the scheme. The council said it wanted to use the cash it had been given to help low-income families and businesses that have been hit by the lockdowns and pandemic restrictions. Susan Aitken, leader of the council, said in a report to councillors, by using the Scotland Loves Local Gift Card Scheme, it will provide cash to individuals from low-income households by way of a gift card that can only be redeemed within the city boundary, providing the local business community with a much-needed cash injection over the next year. The cards will be given out to low-income households who receive a council tax reduction benefit. Councillor Aitken added, The Scotland Loves Local campaign is a national initiative designed to encourage those who live in Scotland to think local first and support their local high streets. The outbreak of coronavirus has caused significant challenges for towns and city centres, high streets and local businesses who have lost out on vital trade. The Scotland Loves Local gift card is an innovative way of keeping spend local for longer in every community and region across Scotland. The programme is designed so that these cards cannot be used out with the city boundary, ensuring the spend remains within Glasgow, benefiting local businesses. There are 84,566 households in the city in bands A to G who get council tax reduction. It will cost up to £9,302,260 to give them all a £110 gift card, with the rest being spent on admin costs and postage. This article is by Stuart Patterson. The card is from the Herald on the 8th of March 2022, from the sports section. Rangers ace Scott Arfield could have had leg broken by Aberdeen player as ex-ref questions John Beaton by Ewan Payton. Rangers ace Scott Arfield could have had his leg broken by a challenge from Aberdeen's Vicente Bissujun at the weekend. That's according to former Scottish referee Stephen, Steve Conroy. The ex-match official says the tackle was a shocker and has questioned John Beaton's decision now to brandish a red card instead of a yellow. Conroy told the Get Involved Referee podcast, You can see that he's reacted to something. He's not happy. He lunges and for me he goes in without any regard for the safety of his opponent. It ticks enough boxes to qualify as a serious foul play offence. I would have issued a red card without question. We would have to ask John how he didn't see it, because when you see a challenge like that coming, you get yourself into position. However, in mitigation, the only thing is it's outside, so maybe he's caught behind the Aberdeen player. But someone of John's experience should be anticipating that and getting into position. You wonder where the fourth official, he was standing right there. It's a potential leg breaker. It was a nasty one and that needs to be looked at. That article was by Ewan Payton. From the Herald Scotland, Tuesday the 8th of March 2022, from the opinion section, International Women's Day, 
Why Consent Education Matters? This article is by Molly Farrell, creator of Matters of Consent, a campaign and fundraiser to create consent lessons. Consent is a feminist issue. Sexual violence overwhelmingly affects women and people of minority genders. One in three women worldwide, according to the WHO in 2017. A reality even more confronting for people of colour. I don't identify as a woman, but our current historical moment in the global north is structured in such a way that I'm not visible as non-binary. As a feminist, and as a person assigned female at birth, I identify with my material history of being brought up, perceived as and oppressed as a woman, something I don't have to look far back to find examples of. I am a survivor, multiply. I have lived with the trauma of reporting an assault, of navigating a crumbling criminal justice system, but my focus is now in the teaching and practice of consent. For this International Women's Day, you will find me planning creative workshops with other survivors in my neighbourhood of Govan Hill, collaborating on research about different intersecting issues, and drafting teaching materials for S1 to S3 levels in Scottish schools. Sexual consent is not routinely taught in UK schools. A better understanding of consent encourages active communication, respectful boundary making and a thoughtful approach to interactions with peers. In teaching children to care for themselves, to respect their own bodily integrity and personal autonomy, we cannot forget to teach them that, for a successful society, this care must be interdependent, it must extend to how we approach and relate to others. As a survivor, my experiences will have changed me forever, but my history can be used to inform a vision of better futures with better systems of education. Last month, Australia became the first country to pass a law enforcing universal consent education within schools. Scotland is a world leader on so many issues, may this be one of them. By Molly Farrell And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes, with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.